service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Barrett's Trident forces urging resistance to law in the name of freedom. They are not seeking freedom for themselves. They have it. They are seeking to enslave others. The evil they represent must be overcome by the good others represent. This can be done. The stories about the mobsters who inspired a Humphrey Bogart movie are insane. One was a natural-born killer who violently overthrew his competition. Another was one of the fathers of modern organized crime who forged an alliance with fellow mafia bosses and ran it like a legit business. They called their business the Commission. The Commission hired the natural-born killer to head up their official kill squad. In the 1940s, the thugs of Murder Incorporated shot, stabbed, and strangled upwards of 1,000 victims. Their brazen disregard for the law put them in the crosshairs of prosecutors hell-bent on bringing them down, which they did, with the help of an unlikely ally, Murder Incorporated's chief assassin turned rat. This epic story served as the foundation for the 1951 police procedural The Enforcer, a great film, starring one of the 20th century's great actors, Humphrey Bogart. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair-use sample from the Library of Congress of then-Governor of Massachusetts Calvin Coolidge speaking in 1920. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Hal Walker's At War with the Army. And why would I play you that specific slice of Martin and Lewis cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on February 24th, 1951. And that was the day that The Enforcer was released in theaters. A rip from the headline story that brought the bloody saga of Murder Incorporated to the silver screen. On this episode, Natural Born Killers, The Commission, An Assassin Turned Rat, Murder Incorporated, and Humphrey Bogart. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season 8, Hollywoodland.
It was the middle of the night when an armored van pulled into the garage at police headquarters. A half dozen armed cops stood nearby. They knew the passenger inside the van was precious cargo. A former lead assassin for the most notorious network of organized crime in America, ready and willing to sing like a canary. If someone else got to him before he was able to do that, the whole case would collapse like a house of cards. So the police did their job and made sure the coast was clear. But when they were satisfied, one of the cops tapped on the van's back door with his nightstick three times. The door unlocked from the inside, and then it opened. A detective stepped out. He scanned the room and spoke. Okay, Captain. Now the police captain stepped out of the van. He surveyed the garage just as the detective before him had. All was quiet and safe. Okay, Rico, come on out. Joseph Rico stepped out of the van. The man who had orchestrated upwards of 1,000 murders for the mob looked haggard, frightened, desperate. A violent killer at the end of his frayed rope. And just how the cops wanted him. Just how Hollywood portrayed him. Because this wasn't actually real life. This was real life adapted. This was the opening scene from the 1951 movie, The Enforcer. A movie based on true events, events that had shocked the country a decade prior. It featured one of the biggest movie stars in the world, Humphrey Bogart, as the good guy, the lead prosecutor, based on real life prosecutor, Burton Turkus, the man charged with taking down a sprawling network of organized crime. That began with the testimony of the rat who just stepped out of the police van. This guy, Joseph Rico, a character modeled after real-life criminal Abe Rellis. But Abe Rellis didn't look anything like Rico. Rico was a pale facsimile of the real thing. Rico wasn't tough, not in the way that Rellis was tough. He wasn't street tough. He didn't look or talk like someone who grew up in Brooklyn's Brownsville neighborhood in the 1920s. The kind of guy who was so raw and so real that he scared even his own friends. They called Rellis Kid Twist because he told them to. He took that nickname from a dead gangster the way he took everything else. With brute force, with his hands, with a gun. Fuck the old Kid Twist. Abe Rellis was Kid Twist now. And fuck his poor mother and father huddled under a cheap blanket in some rundown apartment building. Sad sack tenement life was for losers. The good life was out on the street, just waiting for you to take it. So Rellis did just that. Prohibition was a great time to be a gangster. And New York gangsters like the notorious Shapiro brothers needed muscle to make that great time even greater. They needed a guy like Abe Rellis. Rellis rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty. Grocers, bakers, brothel owners, they all got regular visits from Rellis. Pay up for the Shapiro's protection. No money, bad things happened. Windows and noses, broken, inventory and livelihood, smashed, your face on the floor, Abe Rellis's heel on your neck. It wasn't just the common man who needed to fear Abe Rellis. When he was pinched at the age of 19 and sent to the pen, the Shapiros did nothing to help him. The message was clear. To the bosses, Abe Rellis was a disposable street thug. So he worked on sending his own message and becoming his own boss. Upon his release, with the blessing of Brooklyn kingpin Albert Anastasia, 
Reyes took out the three Shapiro brothers. The first brother was shot in the face. The second brother was so disfigured they had to identify him by his fingerprints. And the third brother was strangled and beaten and then stuffed into a laundry bag and dumped in a shallow grave where he was buried alive. It was tough shit like this that endeared Abe Rellis to Lucky Luciano, one of the fathers of modern organized crime, who, like Rellis, eliminated his competition as a means to get to the top. Luciano helped form what came to be known as the Commission, a collective of underworld families from New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and beyond that banded together like a bona fide American business. And like any business, there were rules to be followed. And when those rules weren't followed, when someone squealed to the cops or someone behaved like an asshole, punishment had to be doled out. And who better to do it than Kid Twist, Abe Rellis, that ambitious psycho thug from Brownsville. Rellis assembled a crew of cold-blooded killers, and that crew had a code. Civilians outside the commission were off limits. That crew had a method, guns to the face, ice picks to the neck, wire to the throat. And that crew had a name, Murder Incorporated. Murder Incorporated was the basis for The Enforcer, the movie in which Humphrey Bogart squares off against Joseph Rico, the watered-down version of Abe Rellis. Rellis never got to see it for himself. In 1951, when the film was released, he'd been dead for 10 years. Just as well, he would have been disgusted by the way he was portrayed on film, pitiful and scared. And this isn't to suggest that when Abe Rellis was alive, he wasn't scared, because he was. He was scared when the cops picked him up for the 42nd and final time. This time, with real hard evidence to connect him to one of his many murders. The DA had him by the short hairs. Hence his motivation to turn state's evidence in the first place. He was also motivated by the blood. For the first time, it wasn't just oozing from the bodies of the men he killed. It was coming from his own body. It was in his throat. Every day he doubled over and coughed, and every day the blood came pouring out of him. Probably cancer. He figured his days were numbered. And to think, he was spending those days being the person he swore he'd never be. A snitch, a rat, a squealer. Unwritten mob law said, the squealer must die. If he was gonna die, he wasn't gonna go out without a fight. Especially if he was backed into a corner. Which, as any rat knows, is when you fight the hardest. Humphrey Bogart enjoyed being a rat. That's capital R rat. As in a founding member of Frank Sinatra's exclusive club of hard partying booze hounds who once turned a Las Vegas cocktail hour into a four day bender. It was the aftermath of that particular bender. On the fifth day, a day when brutal hangovers rendered the group catatonic that prompted Bogart's wife, Lauren Bacall to declare, you look like a goddamn rat pack. The name stuck, 
and with Sinatra as Packmaster, Judy Garland as First Vice President, and Bogart and Bacall as Rat in charge of public relations in Denmother, respectively. The Rat Pack made a group of famous celebrities even more famous for their wisecracks and stiff drinks. In Bogart's own words, the Rat Pack existed for, quote, the relief of boredom and the perpetuation of independence, unquote. The press ate it up, the public too. At this point, in the mid-1950s, Humphrey Bogart had earned his spot to run with an elite pack. He was Hollywood's requisite tough guy, emotionally concise, effortlessly cool, forever cynical, tough. He was tough without a gun, to paraphrase Raymond Chandler the pulp writer who favored Bogart to play the private dick Philip Marlowe in the movie adaptation of The Big Sleep. That was one of many films Bogart delivered in his prime, the 1940s, a decade in which Abe Rellis and Murder Incorporated were busy being put on trial. High Sierra, The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo. These are just a few of the films Bogart made during that fruitful decade. In each one, he didn't suffer fools. Bogart cut the shit and got to the point. He was a fastball right down the middle of the plate. Uncomplicated. But by 1956, things were a little more complicated. Humphrey Bogart wasn't himself anymore. Or he wasn't the Humphrey Bogart that moviegoers had come to know and love. Maybe he never was that guy at all. Right now, he was conscious of how untough he was. He was weak, fragile in extreme pain, some of the worst pain of his life. And this was a guy who was once stabbed in the back with a kitchen knife by one of his former wives. And this pain was like a thousand knives up and down his side. The coughing made it worse. He coughed so hard that he ruptured the stitches that ran from his shoulder down to his waist. And the surgery had taken nine hours and they removed his esophagus, two lymph nodes and a rib. He hoped they had removed the cancer too, but he wasn't crazy about his odds. He knew that just because the procedure was cutting edge and just because as an A-list celebrity he could afford it, that didn't mean it would make everything better. And this wasn't the Congo. Bogart wasn't superhuman like he was on the set of The African Queen. He and director John Huston practically embalmed with liters of scotch, immune to the nasty wave of dysentery that sickened the rest of the crew. And this wasn't just another hangover, like the one he'd suffered through back in 1934 when he was a nobody and auditioned for a role as gangster in a Broadway play called The Petrified Forest. Bogart looked like shit that morning, five o'clock shadow, eyes red and glassy. He looked like he wanted to be anywhere else. Couldn't care less if he tried. And the producers, on the other hand, cared very much. His whole mood fit the part to a T, and when he first walked on stage in January of the following year playing the role of an escaped convict that plays heavy, the audience audibly gasped. They thought of real-life gangster John Dillinger, shot dead by the FBI agents just months earlier. It was like they were watching Dillinger himself come to life, straight from the pages of the daily papers. And for Jack Warner, the studio boss who took the train all the way from Los Angeles to New York City to witness the performance for himself, it was like he was watching Warner Brothers' new leading man. Bogart wasn't asking anyone to suspend their disbelief. He made them all believe that he, Humphrey Bogart, 35 years old, an actor with a hangover looking for his audience, 
for his role was really a hardened man for a rapidly approaching modern age. A real tough guy. Abrellis didn't have time for Broadway plays. Least of all, one where some schmo from a posh neighborhood slummed it as a gangster and made uptown debutantes clutch their pearls. Abrellis was busy doing actual gangster shit. And though he was the chief executive executioner for Murder Incorporated, the official kill squad for guys like Lucky Luciano and Albert Anastasia, he personally didn't have to do most of the murdering. He just had to act tough. That and delegate, like any good boss. He started them young, kids, punks. They were easiest to mold and they wanted what he had. Cashmere coats, pinstripe suits, cigar in his mouth, top shelf liquor in his glass, chorus girls on his knee. So they did whatever Rellis told them to do. Bust some noses, slice some necks, kill or be killed. Bugsy Goldstein was a sadistic little fuck. He liked to tie a guy up with one end of the rope around his ankles and the other end around his neck. So when the poor bastards struggled, and trust me, they always struggled, the noose would just get tighter and tighter. And the guy would choke himself to death, his face turning blue, spit and blood oozing from the corners of his mouth while Bugsy stood there and watched. Pittsburgh Phil Strauss was more hands-on. They called him the flying gangster because he took the long distance jobs. He traveled with the bare necessities, a change of clothes, toothbrush, cologne, also some rope, a loaded pistol, and a meat cleaver. It was always good to have options. Rellis and his crew became regulars in the New York court system, but there was never enough dirt to hold them. Lucky Luciano was not so lucky. Arrested for 24 counts of prostitution, guilty on every count, 30 to 50 years in state prison. It was the first time a major mob player had been taken down for something other than tax evasion. Capone's bust was Snoresville by comparison. The Luciano case had sex, sex sold papers, sex sold tickets at the Nickelodeon like marked woman. The 1937 movie that was released not even a year after Luciano went to prison. It was clearly meant to be about him, even if the Hayes Code dictated that the woman in the title was not a sex worker, but a nightclub hostess. And that hostess rats out a mob boss to help the DA win his case. Playing the DA was a turn for Humphrey Bogart, a guy who came up playing gangsters. But the turn fit him, and it fit in with audiences who themselves had turned from reveling in the bad guys to rooting for the good guys. As Bogart's fame grew, so did the targets on the backs of the real gangsters. In the wake of Luciano's sentencing, Murder Incorporated stepped up its game. Abe Rellis told his crew to work harder and faster. It was their job to get to any and all potential informants within the commission before the DA's office did. If you were a driver for a mob boss, but you were out on parole, and a condition of your parole was to share intimate details on your boss's whereabouts, Murder Incorporated found your traitorous ass and blew your brains out. If you were the owner of the trucking company that the commission put out of business when they took their business elsewhere, a move that left you feeling betrayed and perhaps a little runny at the mouthy, Murder Incorporated chased you down and pumped you with 28 slugs from sawed-off shotguns. 
And if he did something stupid, like skim the profits of slot machine earnings that belonged to Anastasia, Luciano, or maybe even Bugsy Siegel way out west, didn't matter who. All that mattered was that you got what was coming to you, a calloused hand that grabbed your head from behind, while another hand stabbed you repeatedly in the neck and chest with an ice pick. Time after time, Murder Incorporated got their man. Like the short, fat man from the Bronx who was betraying the commission by talking to the DA. In July of 1939, four of Abe Rellis' assassins sat waiting in a sedan parked outside an apartment building. A fifth assassin, the gunman, stood next to the building's front door. It was 8 a.m., the exact time every day when said short, fat man left the apartment building for work. Today was no different. Short Stuff stepped out and began to walk towards the subway station. The gunman fell in line behind him. He pulled a 32, raised it, shot the fat man six times in the back, and the man fell to the pavement, dead. The car screeched as it pulled up alongside and the gunman jumped in. The whole thing was over in a matter of seconds. There was a problem, a short, fat problem. The man wasn't who they were looking for. He just looked like the man they were looking for. The man wasn't a mobster. The man was an innocent, a civilian. The killing went against the commission's code and it lit a fire under the DA's ass. They called up the FBI and they took advantage of the services of one Burton Turkus, former defense attorney for the bad guys, who was now the head of the homicide division in the Kings County DA's office. In a little over 10 years time, Humphrey Bogart would play a version of Turkus on the big screen. But for now, Burton Turkus had a mission corner a rat and get him to squeal. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Humphrey Bogart's tough guy contemporary, James Cagney, once said, quote, when it comes to fighting, Bogart was about as tough as Shirley Temple. The author, James Agee, who co-wrote the screenplay for The African Queen, the movie that earned Bogart his first and only Academy Award, said Bogie was, quote, Nietzsche in dungarees. Audiences, of course, saw a slightly different man. In his defining roles as Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe, and Rick Blaine, Bogart was toughness personified. And he was tough while maintaining integrity, honesty, and wit. At the time of the world's greatest crisis, World War II, Bogart's presence was a comforting one. The way he could deliver a quick line or quicker punch endeared him as a gruff protector shepherding moviegoers through an era of great uncertainty. But he didn't want to just act like a protector. He wanted to be one in real life, which is why he took a public stand when actors and Hollywood artists began to find themselves on the blacklist. The unfriendly 19, the Hollywood 10, anyone and everyone in Bogart's industry labeled a communist by the House Un-American Activities Committee, AKA HUAC, needed a voice, a tough voice. Bogart had that voice. He didn't know if these people were actually communists and he didn't care. The point was that their freedom to be whoever they wanted to be and not have to answer to Congress for it was being threatened. This was the real un-American activity. The Committee for the First Amendment wasn't the Rat Pack, but it was stacked with celebrities nonetheless. 
Rita Hayworth, Groucho Marx, and Gene Kelly joined Bogart and his wife, Lauren Bacall, not to lobby for communism, but to defend the Constitution and defend America. The real America. America the beautiful, not the ugly America painted by Huack and its stooges. Bogart and his friends took their show on the road. They boarded a plane and flew to Washington, D.C. The press followed, and then the press turned on them. Look at these rich movie stars flying around in their private planes, running to the aid of communists. Bogart's plan to be of help, to be of service, it backfired. Despite the drubbing he received in the papers, he knew he wasn't a disgrace. He knew what America truly was at its core. And just a few years later, in 1951, playing the role of the prosecutor and the enforcer, he contemplated the many layers of America, the parts you see and the parts you cannot. A decade prior, Burton Turkus, the real-life prosecutor who was the basis for Bogart's character, didn't know that a shadow America existed. No one at the start of 1940 knew that a highly complex web of organized crime was discreetly operating underground, just as efficiently as Ford ran his production line. All Burton Turkus knew was that bodies kept dropping. He stared at the map of New York City hanging on the wall of his office. It was saturated with hundreds of pushpins, each one indicating an unsolved homicide. Murder Incorporated had been busy. Under the guidance of Abe Rellis, men were shot, strangled, stabbed, bludgeoned, and chopped into pieces. Most of these murders were orchestrated by Abe Rellis, but not carried out by him. By his count, there were 11 that he committed himself. But all Burton Turkus needed was one, and he had one, the 1933 murder of a petty thief. Turkus had the evidence to pin that murder on Abe Rellis, so Abe Rellis had a choice. Suffer the consequence of his actions or turn state's evidence. Contemplating this in a dank holding cell in downtown Manhattan, Rellis began coughing up blood. He convinced himself it was cancer or TB. He thought about the murder of the petty thief and that of the others. He ordered so many, 500, 800, 1,000. It was foolish to even try to count. What could he quantify? The number of days he had left on this earth, the growing number of bosses getting pinched, like LA's Bugsy Siegel recently hauled in for suspicion of murder, or the growing number of stool pigeons from within the commission's ranks. Rellis was backed into a corner. He knew what he had to do. He went full rat. He told Turkus in the DA's office everything. He testified under oath for four straight hours. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle called it a song of death. The atrocities that Rellis exposed were so graphic that the judge had to routinely call for a recess. Rellis sold out his closest friends. He sold out Bugsy Goldstein and Pittsburgh Phil Strauss. He sold out Commission Bigwig Albert Anastasia, currently MIA. He sold out everybody. Well, almost everybody. There was one more. Rellis was set to testify in the trial against Lepke Buckalter, who, along with Albert Anastasia, was one of the commission's New York bosses. As the day approached, Rellis's health got worse, and so did his paranoia. 
He was convinced that Buckalter or Anastasia would get to him somehow, some way, before he took the stand one more time. Maybe a sniper through a window. Maybe a payoff to a crooked cop on the inside. Rumor had it that Bugsy Siegel himself had raised a hundred grand to whack Rellis. Turkus moved Rellis to a more secure spot. Into the rat suite, AKA the entire east wing on the sixth floor of the Half Moon, a hotel in Coney Island. And not just Rellis, a whole pack of rats involved in the takedown of the commission. The rooms were secured with bulletproof doors. Cops provided round-the-clock protection. Outside, the shadows shifted along the boardwalk, and the Atlantic hugged the coast tight. Someone thought they spotted a marksman on a rooftop. Another said they saw a man fitting Albert and Anastasia's description standing watch in the darkness. Rellis kept up appearances, but behind that tough guy facade, he was panicking. He was a fink, a real piece of shit. He paced, and the faces of the men he killed ran through his head. So did his own inevitable murder. Surely it would be swift and pitiless, delivered by one of the guys in that song of death he sang so well. Guys who were now being sent to the electric chair thanks to his thorough testimony. His condition worsened. He was retching blood now. It poured from his throat and from his gut, rotten from the inside out. But Abe Rellis didn't die from whatever mystery ailment was afflicting him. Shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of November 12, 1941, just hours before he was set to testify against Lepke Buckalter, Abe Rellis' body was found five floors beneath his hotel window, sprawled on the roof of the first floor kitchen that stuck out directly below. An autopsy would later reveal that he landed in a seated position, snapping two vertebrae on impact, rupturing his liver and spleen and killing him on the spot. He went out, not as a tough guy, but as a rat, a squealer. And just like that unwritten mob law insisted, the squealer must die. In 1951, 10 years after Abe Rellis fell from the window of his hotel room, when the enforcer brought the Hollywood version of his story to the big screen, there were still no answers to the questions surrounding his death. Did his paranoia or his conscience get the best of him? Did he jump or did someone else get to him first? Was he pushed? Was it the commission tying up another loose end? No one knew. Today, in 2023, more than 80 years later, we still don't have the answers. But we do know that his mystery ailment, the one that caused him to cough up blood, was not cancer or TB as he feared. It was merely a pulmonary cyst, not life-threatening. Unlike the illness plaguing the man who portrayed the prosecutor in the movie version of Abe Rellis' story, Humphrey Bogart's cancer was very real and very aggressive. The surgery only did so much. The malignancy spread. He had trouble eating. He lost weight. He was bound to a wheelchair, injected with nitrogen mustard, an early form of chemotherapy, sucking oxygen from two green tanks. And at the end, he was barely 80 pounds. He appeared more vulnerable than ever and felt just as frail. 
But like a true tough guy, Humphrey Bogart faced his fate head on with courage and resolve. Unlike Lefke Buckalter, who begged for mercy before being led down the corridor at Sing Sing where he, along with his two lieutenants, got 20,000 volts in the chair. At the time, the New York Times described him as, quote, a small, frightened man, unquote. Ditto for Bugsy Goldstein and Pittsburgh Phil Strauss, Rellis' close friends and two of his most prolific killers. They both rode the lightning in the same chair at the same prison. And before they were executed, Goldstein caught what was known as hot seat fever. He lost his shit, screaming, shrieking, crying uncontrollably like so many men had cried for their own lives as Goldstein so callously took them. And this went on for hours. And finally, Goldstein was led down that same short corridor into that same room where an oak chair was bolted to the floor. He sat down, he was strapped in, and the leather pulled tight under his chin, electrode on his head, followed by a black hood. The executioner spun the dial, and Goldstein's body shook violently. The lights flickered, and the stench of burnt flesh filled the small room. Lucky Luciano fared a bit better than the rest. After offering up Sicilian mafia contacts to the US government, his sentence was commuted and he was deported back to the motherland. Bugsy Siegel, once facing indictment, was released due to a lack of evidence. He returned to his 35-room mansion in the exclusive Holmby Hills neighborhood of Los Angeles where he was neighbors with, among others, Humphrey Bogart, who, shortly after two in the morning on January 14, 1957, succumbed to the cancer in his body and died inside his Holmby Hills mansion. He was 57. Six months after Bogart's death, one of the last surviving members of the original commission resurfaced. Albert Anastasia had remained at large for years. Unlike Abe Rellis and the others, he was never prosecuted. He never got to see what the oak chair felt like in Sing Sing. Instead, on October 25th of 1957, Anastasia was sitting in a different chair, a chair inside a barber shop in Midtown Manhattan. He needed a little taken off the top. The barber leaned the chair back and reached for his electric clippers. Anastasia closed his eyes. He listened to the soothing hum of the clippers as they trimmed his hair. Then he thought he heard the clippers jam. He opened his eyes, and he was shocked to see two men standing over him. They wore fedoras, aviators, and scarves to cover their faces. He hadn't heard the Clippers jam after all. He'd heard two revolvers cock. The men raised their weapons, pointed them at Anastasia, and fired. They painted the tile floors with his brains. Then they walked outside, dropped the guns on the sidewalk, and descended into a subway station. Albert Anastasia, like so many made men of the commission before him, met a swift and sudden end. A tough break for a so-called tough guy. One that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.